within a society, what rights do we have as individuals within that society? And these are key questions. Come along on a journey toward wisdom. I think individual liberty sits at the core of what we as mankind have sought to achieve. This is Seeker with Dave Jenks. I'm Matt Hayes. Dave, as we continue on with our Seeker podcast series, in our last one, we talked about spirituality and how we're all connected. Is there kind of an underlying set of principles that, since we're connected on this higher level, are there a set of principles that truly connect us? Is there like a set of principles that we all genuinely truly live by? I think it's what we're seeking for. I mean, we are seekers. And I think as human beings together, as a society, as mankind, as civilization, we're on this search for what is it that holds us together, pulls us together and makes our lives together more fulfilling and easier and more cooperative. And we're looking for that. And so it's interesting, Matt, because I think as a seeker, it's strange that we sort of in the middle of these series, which are going to be the middle of my book, we've really come, first of all, to this spirituality, which is interesting because we started out with looking at ourselves as seekers and then ourselves in terms of how we work mentally and cognitively and how we deal with emotions and feelings and kind of self-awareness and self-understanding. And then we moved into looking at the world, science, the big world, things we know way outside us, then closer and closer to earth, and then finally life itself. And then that led us in, we felt naturally, to being curious about, is there some divine force behind all of this? something we would call God or a, or a universal intelligence or a higher power. And that led us to our discussion on spirituality. And now in a sense, and I think as, as a seeker, this is what happens for me. Now I come back to, okay, what matters for us as human beings and how do we work together? What is our nature as human beings? How do we work together cooperatively and effectively with others? And so we're looking for, I guess, what you'd call the social contract. What agreements do we have with each other as human beings? And I think that leads us kind of into a a series of three things. One is, for me, it's freedom and personal rights. And number two is it's economics. And number three is it's governance. Right now, we're going to deal with what I think is freedom and responsibility, because I think that underpins the nature of our contract. Now, the thing that we all understand is that we are cooperative beings in the history of the evolution of all animals and beings. We're one of the most cooperative, maybe other than a, an anthill or a beehive, because we have to be. We're not strong. We're not fast. We don't see very well. We don't actually hear very well. All of our senses that other species and animals have at a very high level, we don't have, including strength and size and resilience. If we don't work together, we get wiped out. Well, one of the things that has been true over the evolution of Homo sapiens and why we have become so dominant, in fact, we may even be knocking out other species and called the sixth extinction, it's because we work well together. We can hunt in groups as tribes and we can do things cooperatively. And a gentleman by the name of David Christopher, who I listened to on a thing called Big History, said that he thought that the key characteristic that made Homo sapiens different and effective was shared learning. In other words, we can pass learning on to each other. We do it verbally. We do it in writing. We do it in classrooms. We do it every which way so that we pass on wisdom from one generation to the next much more effectively than any other species does. And so that gives us this tremendous advantage. So I think what we're trying to do, Matt, as human beings is learn how to survive. We need each other to do that. How to gain security and comfort. We need each other to do that. How to have somehow we are built in for a need for a sense of belonging 
to be loved and nurtured and cared about. Of course, we need other people to have that, but it seems to be an emotional need that almost all of us have. And then there's esteem. How do we feel confident and strong and good about ourselves? And again, that has to do in our ability to work with others, achieve in relationship to others, and be considered to be respected. And so I think all of those things require us to work together. And so, yes, I think there is a set of principles. I, don't, I think we disagree on a lot of them, but I think underneath it all is a set of principles which you and I are going to explore in this session. I'm a bit of a history nerd. And one of the reasons why I love looking back at history for our country and and pretty much all, all over time around the world is because this kind of social contract that you talked about, all these different kind of agreements that people have, have kind of changed and evolved over time. So I want to ask you about that. How has this social contract that humanity has gone by evolved over time? Well, it's evolved massively. And of course, we don't know exactly what it was like in long, long ago days, you know, 100 thousand years ago. But we do know in the Paleolithic era, when human beings were hunter-gatherers, they worked in small groups, tribes. They went and they hunted for animals. That was their nourishment. They got clothing from that, made clothing. They built tools that allowed them to build things, weapons, and build fires. They cooked things. Over time, they worked cooperatively together. But two things come out of this that are very interesting we're dealing with, I think, as modern humans. One is the male of the species was successfully aggressive. They were warriors. They were hunters. They went out and got the animals. They were athletic. Of course, the testosterone and all of that that is part of being a male was part of that, the muscularity, the speed, and they became the hunters. So now as modern humans, where we don't need that, we're still dealing with this male aggression, this male warrior kind of internal set. And then on the other side of it, we have the nurturing side of the female of the species because they were the ones who gave birth and they did the caretaking and they tended because it was a division of labor that was effective. They tended to kind of keep the household as it moved around the tribe. And they were in that. And some societies, as far as we can tell historically, some the women were more in charge of the nature of the village or the tribe. And in others, the male was. By the way, there's one other thing, Matt, we deal with out of the paleo area. It's our obesity because we are oriented for eating more because paleos, whenever they had an animal to eat, they ate it. They ate it big and they loved fat and they loved protein and they loved salt and they loved sweets because it gave them the health they needed. And of course, they barely were surviving. So that was important. But now that we have this abundance of all these foods as, you know, paleo diets, actually, we have to be careful of that idea. It sounds good. But in fact, what it means is we overeat and we eat those things because it's in our nature. Now, all of that said, that kind of is the foundational. But then we moved into the agricultural age. And that was where we settled down and we learned how to domesticate animals and plants. And it allowed us to create more food and more shelter than we needed just for ourselves or a small tribe. We now could feed a bigger group of people. And that then allowed then for a division of labor, which is really important because now we could have people do different things. Some were warriors, some were farmers, some were caretakers, some were building, you know, they did clothing. And we started to get a wider and wider spread of occupations that served each other and made things work. But also we started to aggregate rather than being small tribes and clans of maybe 
a few dozen people or maybe as many as a hundred or so, we started to become villages and then cities and then city-states. Well, once we got to the city-state thing, now we got into politics and governance. Now we had layers of bureaucrats, layers of leaders, authority, uh, rules, because it was all complex and rules for trade and it got complicated. And then of course, in our modern area, we're into urban, which is that we have these massive cities with millions and millions of people in and they have to get along and yet services have to be provided to them. That's kind of how it's evolved. And now we have, of course, very complex interaction with the communication we have and everything since the Industrial Revolution. Here's the thing that's relevant to the rights that you and I are talking about. Historically, things kind of worked fairly equally in the tribe, although the tribe leader was important. Tribe shaman had another different power, the medicine man. But fundamentally over time, people were enslaved they were told what they would do. They were told what their function was. The leaders, the power that be, or the even sometimes the tradition said, you will do this. Then we had this layering of hierarchies of people, the people that were in the ruling class, the court royalty, and then maybe the barons and the lords who would own land and have agricultural areas. And then the people that worked on those were serfs and they were basically enslaved. Slavery historically is a technical definition where you actually own the person, the being, and that was true, and that's still true in places, but it was even sometimes where it was just enslavement. And then there would be government rules that would say, you will do this, you will work this way. And then religions did that. Religions said, you will do this, and by religious dogma. And so it's been a battle Matt, I would say in the last five, six hundred years for people to assert their individual freedom. And I think that's where we start to get to a different level of this idea of human rights and human cooperation. So let's talk about what our society is like today. How would you describe the type of society and the civil contract that we have? And is there anything maybe from the past that we've kind of forgotten about, that we've gone through, that maybe we should keep in the in the front of our minds today so that way maybe we can live and have a better social contract with ourselves? We're in a state of confusion, an identity crisis. If you were kind of to view the evolution of mankind, we're probably in our teenage years. There's contention. There's people with different views of how things should be, how they should relate to other, what kind of freedoms they should have or not have, who should make the decisions. We're in a time, I think, worldwide of, of heavy conflict. Some of it historically comes out of religion and different belief systems and different religious identities. Some of it comes out of social, like the contention that's been among societies as they tried to take over other societies. And that's less or so, that imperialism is less, although on an economic basis, every kind of group is trying to get their economic advantage. I think, Matt, what's important right now, and I would ask as a seeker, for us to ourselves define, what do we mean by a civil society? What is the kind of civilization or civil society we would like to see? How would we like to build it? What are the ways we treat each other? You know, for me, I mean, I think there's a set of decency and treating each other with manners and respect. I think there's an openness for people to discuss things and debate them, even though they may feel passionately about them, but not to put the other one down simply because they have a different idea. I think it's allow the freedom of association, freedom of people of being together and doing things together, freedom of speaking out. I think there needs to be a freedom of economics and economic choices, my career, the way I do things, the way I do business. Within all of that, the rules, now we'll get more into this later, but the rules need to just protect the rights of individuals to make 
these choices and work cooperatively together. As our vision for cooperation out of choice as opposed to coercion moves, then I think we get a society that is smarter, is working more effectively together, is gaining insights, a productivity, and personal satisfaction. To me, those are the fundamentals of a civil society. And I think they're ones that are right now, if not at risk, they're in contention. And I think this discussion becomes a very important one for all of us that are seekers about the way that mankind should work with each other. When I hear the term social contract, one of the first things I think of is human rights, which is something that we seem to still struggle with in so many parts of the world today. How would you define human rights? I think it's an important issue of what within a society, what rights do we have as individuals within in that society? And these are key questions. And of course, where do they come from? I think historically it's kind of interesting because you have the Hippocratic Oath, which said, do no harm, and talked about the caregivers in the medical professions, of course. And then we have the Ten Commandments, which sound like a set of orders, but really in some ways, they're a set of freedoms because it says, you know, if you commit yourself to your higher power, to God, and you honor that God, and you don't take that God's name in vain, and you honor your mother and father, then the way we should be with each other is we shouldn't kill. We shouldn't commit adultery, which for me as a placeholder for we should follow our agreements. If we agree to be true to one another, then we need to be that. It doesn't say anything about fornication. That's covered other places in the Bible, but it's not in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. You shouldn't take that which is not yours. And you shouldn't bear false witness against a neighbor. That's an interesting thing that that's right in the Ten Commandments. It's been contained in law. You cannot lie in court. If you're testifying about somebody else, you cannot state a falsehood about them. Now you can do it, but then you're subject to also then having legal action against you. So it's interesting. It says you can't bear false witness and you shouldn't covet. You shouldn't covet that neighbor's house, the neighbor's wife, or those neighbor's servants. And so that in a way, it's interesting, is kind of a protection of property rights. It says if someone owns something or someone has an agreement that you shouldn't violate that. You should not seek to violate that. And there we start to begin to see. Now, you move from that to the U.S. Bill of Rights. The U.S. Constitution you know, says we are all created equal by our creator. We have in certain unalienable rights, uh, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So right there we get rights. We have a right to our life. No one has a right to threaten that or take it away from us or harm us. We have liberty, free to make choices as much as we can. And of course, that becomes a debatable issue in a society is what freedom do you have? And when does it hurt somebody else? And when doesn't? Or when do we just say you can't do it? And then the final one is pursuit of happiness, which really was taking John Locke's philosophy and using that phrase instead of property rights, because he just said, you have to have property rights if you're going to have freedom in a society. So the Bill of Rights protects you. Clearly, number one's a big one. Free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of protest, of speaking out. That is a big one. Right to bear arms is, of course, contentious, but it says you have a right to protect yourself. You have a right to protect yourself against others. You can't just expect that's going to happen automatically. You have the right to do that yourself. And then the other ones really are about the right to a trial, about the right to due process in that gating a trial, not being able to be tried twice, not having to testify against yourself. And then we 
we get down to the, the fact that you retain all other rights, the government is only given a certain number of rights over you. And then, of course, Tenth Amendment states' rights, which is that most of the power was intended to be in the states governmentally and not in the centralized government. I think that what we're all involved with is a discussion of what are the fundamental human rights that matter? And is it just the rights to do something or is it the rights from something like from poverty or from you know not being taken care of or what are the rights you can do and protection from those are the big debates that we're having right now and we should have them is there a difference between rights and liberty and freedom i believe that personal liberty, personal freedom, is the greatest invention in the history of mankind. Because if you took a look at all the history and the dictatorships and the serfdom and the authority that was controlled over people, and you realize the path we've been on, we've been on a path to maximize individual freedom and liberty, freedom of choice. So is it different from rights? No, I think it's the fundamental right. The right is freedom of choice. The right is freedom to live, freedom to do what I want, freedom to own property and use that property in the way I choose, that probably with that more than a sense of difference between rights and independence is really sort of this idea of rights and responsibilities. So on the one hand, we have the rights, which I think the fundamental one is freedom and free choice. And then the other we have is responsibility, and that is to not violate other people's rights. And as best we can, we'll get to this a little later, uh, work cooperatively with others. I think individual liberty sits at the core of what we as mankind have sought to achieve. Over time, humans have had to fight many different battles to keep liberties, to keep their freedom, to keep their rights. What are some of the modern threats to liberty today? Well, always it's dictatorship. When somebody gets in control, and that's always been a history, those in control like to stay in control. Some like to be in control just to be in control. Some like the lifestyle and advantages that come with being the tyrant and everything works for you and everyone works for you. You're in control, uh, although somebody may assassinate you because they want to be in control. So it's one of those iffy institutions. But the thing is that we always have to fight that. And then we have to fight the more slippery things, the oligarchy. An oligarchy is where a few limited number of very wealthy controlling people control an economy and control a society and decide what the rules are and how it happens. Even though they're not officially elected, they sit there. They're kind of in the back, but they always act in their interest. They pull the strings of the puppets maybe that are in charge or, or in name in charge. I think the other thing that we are in danger of in our country, and we've seen the move of it uh, in the last hundred years particularly, is big centralized government. Because what our founding fathers knew and why they tried to put so many limitations in the Constitution against a large centralized government. They wanted it to be more at the state level and at the local level. It was because once you get that much power and you get that much money centralized, now you have all the things that come into play that remove freedom. They do it subtly through regulation and requirements and procedures and taxation. It can be very insidious and it sneaks up on you because you sort of aren't feeling it because in general the societies may be abundant and doing well, but all of a sudden you find yourself very restricted by government control. And of course, as you and I know, the persistence of this comes from the Iron Triangle, which is this kind of automatic cooperation between politicians to get elected, government bureaucrats, to keep their job and do more and more regulating and special interests which can either be a unique special interest or it can be a corporation that is a business special interest who have lobbyists and pay people to donate to their 
elections and they on the on the backside of it are kind of funding this triangle which is self-perpetuating it's keeping the bureaucrats in power it's keeping the politicians elected and it's keeping the special interests with an advantage because of uh, the work of government on their behalf. And then the one final one we always have to be aware of is the tyranny of the majority. This was clearly in the the founders' minds in Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. If you kind of had the makers and the takers, you had the ones who were actually producing and making the wealth of a nation, and then you had those who were recipients of it passively, that they would then more and more vote in their self-interest to continue to get more and more of what the makers are making without having to do any making themselves. That would be the tyranny of the majority. So there's other types of freedoms and rights that we have then more than just what we're talking about from the social contract of how we treat each other, but there's other types then you're saying. Well, there are. And, uh, you know, the fundamental one is financial freedom and understanding economics. Economic freedom and economic choice, the ability to gain financial independence is really critical to freedom. And of course, Matt, I think that points us to our next episode. To hear other episodes of Seeker, go to DaveJinks.com.